Okay, it's my great pleasure to have on the line with me Daniel Connell. He is an inventor and open source technology enthusiast. Thanks very much for joining us, Daniel. Thanks for having me. So, if anyone who can cut paper and hold a drill can build one of your wind turbines, uh, all sounds uh, tremendously exciting. Looking forward to hearing about the workshops you've got coming up and so forth. But maybe just uh, to give our listeners a bit of background, could you just tell us a little bit about your journey, how you came to be doing this this kind of work? Um, so I guess I started on my first project uh, in 2009, which was a um, tracking solar concentrator. So like basically a curved mirror which follows the sun during the day and then concentrates the the solar thermal energy um, onto like a black copper tube then like cycles into a liquid and you can use that heat for things like cooking or like um, um, generating energy, that sort of thing, um, which was the first kind of really hands-on practical thing that I developed. It was an idea that I'd had uh, for a couple of years but hadn't done anything with. Um, and so mid-2009 when I was back in Australia over from um, from Europe, uh, I figured I should probably do something with it. I could sort of see that there was, like that, that sort of thing would be potentially useful to people and just sort of sitting on it and not doing anything with it would be a bit of a shame. So I started, um, started prototyping it uh, and quite quickly saw that the original like idea that I had for how it would work just didn't work like at all. Um, I was quite sort of I didn't. I didn't go to university. I didn't have any sort of like job experience in that kind of field. So a lot of like what I was thinking about, you know, how things would work and, and function was like not really based on reality. But so I just sort of kept like plugging away at it anyway, um, and it sort of like evolved uh, into like um, we took about a year and a half of like bouncing around uh, Europe, staying in like squats and autonomous centres, and just sort of getting access to uh, to what workspace and living space I could. Um, and after about a year and a half of that, I had a thing which, which worked, basically, like um, something that would that would follow the sun. It was uh, non-electrical. Um, like, most of the stuff that I design is non-electrical. Um, so that's, um, that solar tracker was based on sort of, like, using some solar energy to boil ethanol, which when, like, runs a little kind of, like, wheel system and then that tracks the sun. Um, so the entire thing would cost about like sixty dollars with materials, and you can make it with like very basic tools and skills. And that was so. From off the back of that, I've sort of like kept going and sort of developing other things. And it's mostly a matter of like seeing a thing which could be useful, which which is needed, but isn't currently as accessible as it kind of needs to be. And so the wind turbine is another example of that, um, where like some uh, I think it was started two thousand thirteen. I was back in Edinburgh. And somebody just sent me like a, a link to some um, some results of the of the testing of the lens to wind turbine design by Mr. Ed Lens that he had done in around 2005, um, and he'd done like full wind tunnel testing and, and all that, and all the, the numbers of it were very good, like the efficiency and the the, um, the power output and that sort of thing. Um, so I went on like some discussion forums just to like to see. Um, what people were saying about it, because on YouTube and that, there's like you know there's some videos of people who have made them, and people on the forums were saying, um, yeah, it's a very good design, like it, it does, it is efficient and powerful and all that. But a 
vertical axis wind turbine, which is what it is, um, is always going to be a little bit harder and a little bit more expensive to build than a horizontal axis. Um, but a vertical, like a horizontal axis wind turbine in an open field with like a steady wind will do very well. Um, but as soon as you get any kind of turbulence or um, obstruction to the wind or that kind of stuff, like um, a horizontal will take a lot more, uh, like a very, like, you know, severe performance hit than like, um, whereas a, t uh, a vertical will um, do a lot better. Like, I mean, it'll still do better in perfect wind, but it'll do still fairly well in, in less than perfect wind. Um, so there's all these reasons for people to be making this turbine instead of a horizontal, because if you're, you know, wherever you people actually like live and work is going to be probably obstructed for wind. It's going to be like there's going to be buildings and trees and stuff around. Um, so I was like, well, if the, if the physics is there, if the numbers are there, um, then the rest is just design. If it needs to be like cheaper and easier to build, then you just design a build process, which is which is cheap and easy. Um, so I said about that through uh, most of 2013 in Edinburgh and then in New Zealand, um, and just managed by the end of it managed to get the like the the bill of materials down to about twenty dollars, um, and like the 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 tools and resources required um, down to like uh, a drill and a craft knife, and um, and that's about it. And um, and this is very much like the point of the whole project is to make things as absolutely accessible as possible. Um, like if, you know, like if I was an engineer, I would design as an engineer and I would build things that need to be built by engineers, basically a machinist, that would need to be like, you know, finely toleranced and have like, you know, access to like um, at least medium grade kind of like um, machinery to produce, which will produce nice things, but that doesn't help people who don't have access to those kind of resources and tools and skills and knowledge. Um, so a lot of what I do is just sort of just radically low resource things, to um, to mean that the the price of the materials is as low as possible, the investment in tools and skills and information is as low as low as possible, so that ideally anybody in the world anywhere um, can make these things, and so can then have produce their own energy, grow their own food, purify water, build houses, you know, um, have access to the internet, that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, mostly I sort of just go from sort of like project to project, having sort of like just tripped over something that needs to be made more accessible to people, and then setting about uh, lowering the um, the the inputs to that, so that uh, yeah, theoretically anybody can do it, and then fully tutorialising everything. So doing like a step by step construction tutorial and getting it translated into various languages and doing like a full three D animation of it so people can actually see every bit sliding into place. They don't need to like go through like text and photos and try to like piece it together in the head. They can just imagine you know, see it. Um, broadcasting that out as much as, as much as I can and uh, doing workshops. So like teaching people like directly hands on how to how to make the things. Um, so yeah, that's that's the project basically. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how this compares to uh, or already existing technology? So, yeah, like I say, like the lens to well, I mean, in, in the case of the of the wind turbine, um, the lens turbine was developed by Mr. Ed Lens, so I didn't do the um, I didn't do the the original sort of um, like more sort of like physics kind of like testing of it. That was all done by somebody with you know more idea about that sort of stuff than me. Um, and people already make the turbines. Um, 
So it already exists. And most of what I do already exists, like the like the air conditioning system um, that I've developed, which um, just is just, just ground cooling, basically just bury a thing and pump air through it. And that that already exists in that people generally lay like 100 meters of PVC under their driveway or something, and it works quite well. But if you don't have hundreds of meters, hundreds of meters of PVC and the ability to dig an enormous hole, um, like my uh, my system just uses like a, a 20 liter like polycarb water, water bottle, and then using uh, water in that as a heat exchanger rather than a lot of PVC. Um, so it's a lot more efficient, but it's also a lot cheaper. The um, the you don't have to like retrofit your house or anything. Like um, you just dig a hole and um, use something to pump air, and that can be the uh, the wind turbine. It can be like an electric pump that you plug into the wall. I'm currently working uh, while I'm here on um, a solar stirling panel, so like a mechanical solar panel, basically, which is a very simple heat engine um, that's made from like wood and bits of aluminium and plastic. Um, and I'm hoping for about a 30%, uh, sorry, uh, a 3% efficiency overall, so that if you have like a square meter of sunlight shining on the thing, which is about a kilowatt, um, then you can get 30 watts out the back, hopefully, if it works, remains to be seen. Um, and with that 30 watts, you can power the air conditioning system. You can they only consume about nine watts because you're not. It's not like a standard like off the shelf like air conditioner, which actually like produces the cold. So it takes a lot of energy to like like force like a phase change in a refrigerant, and then you know that creates the cold. You're just tapping into an existing source of cold in the environment, which is you know the, the ground temperature two meters down, which should be about 15, 20 degrees. Um, and so you're just pumping air in a circle, which takes very little force, um, very little power. Um, and the, uh, again, the total bill of materials is about $20. All you have to do is, like, you know, dig a hole and bury a thing. Um, and also for the solar sterling panel, um, it's the same sort of ballpark. Like, you can make it in a, you know, a couple of days with a, with a drill and a hacksaw. Um, and again, it will cost about, cost about $20. And you can also then put like a little, you know, a little bike dynamo or something on that and get, you know, tens of watts of electrical power off the thing, which can charge your phone, run some lighting, charge your laptop, that sort of thing. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of what I design is, is quite modular in that different parts of different things can be pulled out and, like, you know, used for different things. And it's, it's kind of like just, you know, a really big Meccano set, but that one will, that will produce actually useful amounts of power and... Um, and you know, do useful work. Sounds uh, fantastic, uh, Daniel. I guess the you know you're talking about there the modular side of it. Uh, I'm kind of just interested a little bit more. Uh, you're obviously a part of a, a, a larger movement here um, with open source technology, uh, and obviously the you know the open source. Uh, you know all, all that, that uh, open sourcing the material you're doing. Um, yeah, I mean, it, what's the I guess the the culture of that sort of thing uh, here in Australia compared to in in other parts of the world? Is it uh, something growing, or what's your what's your sense of that? I'm not as plugged into the Australasian kind of side of things as say the European, where I've been spending a lot of my time. Um, it's basically in like in the Western world, the only place that it really seems to be like taking off would be North America. Um, for whatever reason, I think it's just a, just a cultural thing. Like, I mean, it's kind of frustrating in Europe, like, doing this stuff, because, like, I do... 
like make a point of like hunting down anybody. Like if I read an article about someone's you know done a thing, I'll you know I'll go and find them on Facebook or whatever, and I'll you know make friends and I'll try to plug them into into the various networks that exist, just to make sure that you know no one's working in isolation unnecessarily, because a lot of this work is done by kind of you know, inventors and retired engineers and that sort of stuff, and they all tend to sort of just be doing their own thing and like reinvent wheel, wheels and not really broadcast that well. Um, whereas you know open source, you know you need to. I mean, it's all, it's all in the broadcast. If you've if you've made a thing but haven't told other people how to reproduce the thing, then you haven't really done anything for anybody other than yourself. Um, and it's it's a it's a separate skill set to like to you know broadcast stuff well and to you know and to build networks and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it's completely essential. Like you know you really have to make the stuff like as accessible as possible, and that's. Most of that is just having a really good tutorial and being able around to answer questions about it. Um, Which goes to Daniel. I mean, uh, just uh, kudos to you for the uh, YouTube videos and things that I've seen where you you are making it uh, very accessible for people. But um, speaking of making it accessible for people, you've got some workshops coming up. Um, tell us a bit about those. Yes, so uh, this weekend um, there's two one-day workshops um, We'll be building the wind turbine start to finish. Um, it's uh, I forget the exact name of the like place that is near. It's near Welshpool. It's sort of like just east of the city, so it's quite central. Um, so there's a few spots left on that. Um, anybody who wants to come along is welcome to. If they just want to uh, email me on windworkshop at gmail dot com, and um, yeah, I'll tag them in. Um, sort of getting back to your like your previous question, um, so like so, I do know some you know I, some number of people who are working on this kind of stuff. Um, in Europe, most of the people I know are really struggling to find people to work with, basically, because like the success of like open source software like Linux. Well, you know, there's no end of open source software, but like you know, Linux, for example. Um, that's successful because as long as you're sitting in front of a computer, you're in the same work environment as everybody else working on the project. Um, so it comes down to absolute numbers of people in the world that you can find to work with, and there are enough of you know people working on that sort of stuff to to make it as successful as it's been. But open source hardware and like low tech stuff, you really need to be in the same room in the same workspace as the people that you're working with at the same time. So it comes down to like density per city, um, and in most parts of the world, you're really going to struggle, especially in the Western world. You're really going to struggle to find people in your city who aren't already busy with their own thing um, to work with. So most of the people I know, and we're not talking about a huge number of people here, unfortunately. Um, yeah, they're they're trying to get a crew together so that they can, you know, do good work and do it quickly, and that makes sense. Except that they're just really struggling to find the crew. Um, I was always going to the model that it would be better if I was working with other people, but people aren't going to come into this project if there's not already a project to come into. Because it's like, otherwise, I mean, a thing that's not already a thing is just a good idea, and everybody's got a good idea. So people are going to be like, ah, oh, that's a good idea. Let me know when that's a thing, and maybe I'll, you know, join in. Um, so I was always like, I'll just do everything myself. And then hopefully, you know, down the line, hopefully fairly quickly, other people will be like, "Oh, cool! I can do that too." And then you know, get a bit of a get a bit of a crew together. 
that hasn't really happened. And a, a lot of that is because I've been sort of like moving around a lot and like um, sort of more trying to make a go of it in places that I want to live, like, like Edinburgh, um, rather than going to the place where I'm going to be most able to find people already doing that. So when I'm back in Europe at the end of next year, I'll probably settle in, probably in Germany. Um, looks like parts of parts of Germany is there's more of a more of a culture of actually making and doing. But from August through to the end of next year, I'll be travelling through uh, the states and then Central and South America um, with this project. Like, well, most mostly in the states, I'll be checking out things that are already happening, like just visiting projects that exist and just sort of you know contributing if I can. Um, and then in Central and South America, like finding, like just sort of, I sort of want to develop models whereby a person can just like show up in a place, find out, you know, if people are, you know, there wanting to work on stuff, what their problems are to solve, what they have to work with, and then just um, just being useful, basically, and sort of being put to work and being like, I'm not here to tell you guys, you know, what the solutions to your problems are, because I, I don't know what your problems are, I'm not from here. Um, but if you guys, you know, you know, I do have some, some, some knowledge that I'm bringing in, and you know, if there's stuff that you guys want to work on, then you know, I, can, I can help with that, hopefully. So it's kind of like quite a sort of reversal of the sort of standard NGO model, whereby you sort of decide what, you know, what your solution is, go around looking for a problem that kind of matches it, deliver some stuff that you had you know, mass-produced in the factory in China, take a few photos and then, you know, leave, basically. And when the stuff breaks, there's no one around to fix it because nobody really knows how it works. Um, a much better model is to just... Um, the first question to be like, hey, what do you guys want? And, like, you know, then what do you have to work with? And, okay, how can I, how can I help with that? Um, so that's what I'll be doing, like, uh, in, in the Americas uh, through the rest of this year and, and next. Um, and I, I did this in, in India in 2004 for about six months, 2014 for about, uh, for about six months, which went okay. Um, it was mostly for my, own, for my own education, just to see what it's like to show up in a place like that and see how a place like that sort of works. And, yeah, a lot of, a lot of, even sort of, you know, trying to keep my preconceived notions to an absolute minimum. Um, still, like, you know, most of what I went in with, I didn't, I didn't come out with. Like, you know, it was very sort of being like, oh, okay. I really had no idea how places like this work, but you know, hopefully now I'm a little bit more, more educated in that kind of thing. Um, I'm looking forward to going to the to the US because that does seem to be like most most of the maker movement is in South America and is in Africa. Um, just because they have more pressing needs to, to fill and less resources to fill them with, so they have to, you know, innovate and and sort of, you know, get creative. Um, in the West, we're a bit spoiled. Like we don't really have to, you know, think about how to solve our problems because we just you know, just buy stuff or pay someone to fix it or that sort of stuff. Um, in the US, there seems to be more of a culture of, oh, that's never been done before, so I'm going to be the person that does it. You know, whereas other parts of Europe. Um, uh, other parts, places like Europe, people tend to be like, "Oh, that hasn't been done before, so that's weird. I'm not going to do it because it's, you know, not a thing that is done." Um, yeah, I think it's just a cultural thing, just you know, just expectations of what a person can do.